1: This is Craig Brewer, the director of Black Snake Moan, and you're listening to Film Spotting.
0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today?
1: You're not interested in art? No. Now, look, we're going to do this thing, we're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson, and I'm Adam Kempinar.
2: Come on, sit down. I promise I won't hurt you. Now, come here. No! <laughs> All right. You want something to eat?
1: so how long till this show devolves into a fight about porgs versus Ewoks is none of the above an option that was yeah come on No. You don't like Porgs or you? Are. are you sure you like Paddington?
2: I think I still have a soft spot for Ewoks from my childhood, Josh. That was Carrie Fisher's Princess Leia with an Ewok companion in 1983's Return of the Jedi. This week on the show, we'll look back 35 years for our top five films of 1983. We'll also have some thoughts on David Cronenberg's cult horror film, also from 83, Videodrome.
1: I may have been hallucinating. I think I saw an Ewok in Videodrome. It's possible. That and more ahead on Film Spotting.
2: Paddington 2, it's Rotten tomato score, Josh, is still at 100%, which I just take to mean you haven't actually caught up with it yet. I'm coming for you, Bear. Next weekend. <laughs> of course weekend. you are. If you're looking for the anti-Paddington, how about the not-at-all-cuddly Videodrome. David Cronenberg's horrifying and prescient 1983 cult film. It has been a conspicuous cinematic blind spot for both of us. We're going to remedy that this week with a blind spotting review. But first, we are going to start with our top five films of 1983, a countdown that the venerable Michael Phillips, the esteemed critic from the Chicago Tribune, was going to join us for. We teased it We said it last week on the show. We said it on Twitter. We thought that Michael was going to be here. He did have to bow out at the last minute. He is very sorry. Of course, we will have him back on the show soon. I guess this means that it's just going to fall to one of us to pay proper tribute to the great Tom Selleck, Bess Armstrong action-adventure classic from 83, High Road to
1: China. Is it going to be you or is it going to be me? I was going to say Stayin' Alive was Michael's (laughs) likely pick, but yeah, you're probably right. This Top 5 Films of
2: 83 countdown is part of our year-by-year countdowns. We usually get to two or three, maybe four of these a year, where we are going backwards from the beginning of film spotting, 2005. Ever since then, we've done our Top 10 films of the year. Now we need to go back through the decades and offer our assessment and we've danced around a little bit but only two more years i think left in the 80s 1983 is one of them so josh let's go ahead and tackle that movie year now your top five how much
1: did nostalgia play a factor if at all in forming this list I tried to keep nostalgia at bay. As a matter of fact, if we get to our top five movies of 1983 in 1983, oh, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll probably see how they're quite a bit different than what I ended up with. I was nine in 83 and didn't have HBO like you. Yeah. So I wasn't see, I watching all these movies yeah, and I, I, I was wasn't eight. watching quite as <laughs> Except much video Didn't get to Videodrome <laughs> no, didn't. that didn't play on HBO nope. even, huh? That kind of makes sense. Yeah, so very different experience than in terms of what I was watching, what I was going to see in the theater, you know, with my parents at that time, compared to what I saw was actually released when I started researching this year, which was incredibly rich, full of nostalgia picks that I could have gone with, uh-huh. but I was able to catch up with a lot of other titles that I'd never seen from the year, and a few did end up squeaking on my list. Well, get us started. Your number five. One of those is my number five. It's Largent, a Robert Brisson film that we didn't get to in our 2012 marathon Brisson's final film, and it's not usually listed among his most prominent works, even though I think it really does incorporate elements from at least two of those, A Man Escaped, I would say, and "Pickpocket." For sure. Here, two teens pass off a counterfeit bill at a camera shop, and then the rest of the movie follows the implications as this bill is passed on. In Brissonian terms, you could say sin spreads and not much grace follows. This is especially true for a truck driver played by Christian Paté, who unwittingly becomes a scapegoat for the bill and eventually ends up in jail. Now, this being a 1983 release, so it's in color and it has a relatively contemporary setting, Largent allows you to draw a direct line from Brisson to his spiritual heirs. So I'm thinking of the Darden brothers, Osgar Farhadi, and especially Christoph Kislowski. His Decalogue films, a few of those installments I think play out much like Largent does. As with Brisson, each of these filmmakers looks at people as primarily moral creatures uh, who are struggling to live out under such demands. I don't think I would start here with Brisson if you're unfamiliar with him, but it's certainly a film that's worth getting to at some point. Yeah. More on that in a moment. My number five is one of the movies that
2: is in the running, as it was in our film spotting poll for Best comedy of 1983. And I will preface this by saying that I just swapped this in at the last minute because I knew my top four was really comfortable with it. That fifth slot was really giving me fits and I thought I'd settled it. I was determined at first I was even going to cheat. And I thought even you would understand, Josh, I was going to make the case that 83 is really an unsung, perhaps year of Tom Cruise. He had been in two films, Endless Summer and Taps, in really small roles. Then in 83, four movies. Losing It, which I can take or leave. I actually really still like All the Right Moves. And then The Big Ones. He's in The Outsiders, though, still a relatively small part of that ensemble. And then The Breakout, Risky Business. So I was going to put Risky Business and The Outsiders together. I love both those films. And then I realized that I just didn't have, honestly, the passion for either of them. And maybe it's because I haven't seen either of them in so long. The movie, though, the comedy that I watched incessantly as an eight-year-old that is still so vivid in my mind that I don't need to rewatch it, it's National Lampoon's Vacation. And maybe part of it was reading the poll comments and reading this take on the movie, this case for National Lampoon's Vacation from Jeremiah Dollins in Colton, California. And he is just going to have to become an honorary member of the show after this, I think. He says... Harold Ramis and John Hughes crafted The Great American Comedy. It's a work about the quintessential nuclear family headed across the country to find paradise in consumerism. Along the way, they cross paths with an America that challenges the idea of whether or not this vision of family can even exist. Certainly, there is some era-specific racism and classism that comes from being written and directed by privileged white males. Thankfully, they are just as critical of the all-American family as they are of the culture and society surrounding them. Chevy Chase's Clark Griswold is a deconstruction of the Ward Cleaver, great American dad, always seeking wholesome family time while indulging in his own darker fantasies. He is woefully incapable of reading situations accurately or even fully understanding his own limitations. Surrounding him are inversions of the family archetypes. Beverly D'Angelo vamps up the matronly mother and stretches our concept of patience under pressure. The kids are equally strange, enjoying coming-of-age arcs better suited for Kerouac characters. This Griswold Odyssey, like most of the films on your list, is episodic in structure, but that never overwhelms the story or character arcs. Vacation is consistently funny and compulsively rewatchable, and it has influenced popular culture in much greater ways, providing the DNA for The Simpsons, Family Guy, and a slew of other family funnies that popped up in its wake. When I started this email, I wasn't completely sure of my pick for 1983's Best Comedy, but I've definitely written myself into a better understanding. And you wrote me into a better understanding. I was basically going to say... It's really funny. It's really funny. And isn't that enough? I think it probably is enough, but I think that Jeremiah makes a lot of very valid points, including how compulsively rewatchable it is and his take on Clark Griswold. And I think what makes it so effective, not only is Chevy Chase actually really good in that role, but he's trying to live up to that ideal. He really strives for that and he just can't pull it off. And we do see that darker side of him come through in what might be my favorite scene when the family finally does mutiny on poor Clark, and he finally loses it.
0: I think you're all in the head. We're 10 hours from the fun park, and you want to bail out. Well, I'll tell you something. This is no longer a vacation. It's a quest. It's a quest for fun. I'm going to have fun, and you're going to have fun. We're all going to have so much fun, we'll need plastic surgery to remove our goddamn smiles. You'll be whistling symphony doo Doo out of your assholes.
2: We've all been there. We're all Clark Griswold, at least... That's the way I feel very often as a father, certainly very often as a father when I'm on a vacation in a car with my family
1: for a long period of time. So this is my number six. It was almost my number five as part of a pairing that I considered too. actually for reasons that Jeremiah mentions. I wanted to put vacation alongside a Christmas story because they are both such perfect deconstructions of speaking of nostalgia, our nostalgia tinged ideas of what family holidays and family vacations should be. but never really are or live up to it. I think they both work really well in that manner. All right, let's stick with comedies. For my number four, I have Valley Girl. Maybe it's just because I'm coming off crazy Nick Cage in Mom and Dad, but I was utterly charmed by him in Valley Girl, which I watched for the first time recently. Really, I was charmed by the whole movie. This is less revered, I think, than 1980s teen comedies like Fast Times at Ridgemont High or really any John Hughes production, I would say. But I do think it's a high point in the genre. Cage plays Randy, a leather-jacketed Hollywood kid who crashes a house party in the valley where he falls hard for a mall girl named Julie. She's played by Deborah Foreman.
0: You live around here? (laughs) Like, this is very strange. What are you doing back here? I forgot my comb. Really, now? Well, to tell you the truth, I kind of thought that maybe you and I could, um... We could what? We could get out of here. (laughs) Like, I don't think you'd be any more welcome down there right now. I mean, let's leave the party. I'm so sure. (laughs) Kill. I'll meet you out front. Wait a minute. Where are we gonna go?
1: I don't care. Cage, you know, it doesn't look like a teenager at all. Nobody really looks like a teenager in this film. But what he does have is a lanky goofiness that captures that sense of a body still trying to figure itself out. He also has, you know, this soft voice and that near drawl that I think he's leaned into harder in certain performances and maybe as he's gotten older. And man, those eyes. You should see this young Nick Cage face in this film. His, his general expression is it's sort of like Bambi after his mother died. Mm. And then every once in a while he'll let loose this incredible smile. He's just he's the definition of dreamy. I love Nick Cage. I love Nick Cage. And yet I have to admit that I have
2: never felt compelled to catch up with Valley Girl, it's one that didn't interest me for some reason as an eight or nine year old, and I remember seeing scenes from it all the time, but never watching more than about two minutes of it. And you've convinced me that I do need to see it.
1: Yeah, and it was listeners on Twitter, I think, that convinced me when huh. I was asking, you know, which films listed a bunch, should I try to catch up with it? And there were surprising I'm number of people Valley Girl. who said, "Really, you should
2: check out Valley Girl." I'm surprised Girl. that was even in the running, though. Is it? Is it a movie that you found? Was appearing on a
1: lot of lists or is revered? No, it was just one I was curious about, and I do think it was because of Cage, the Cage Factor. Mm -hmm. I just thought I haven't seen a lot from him that early, so I wanted to check it out, and yeah, he made it worth it. The movie is also distinctive, though, thanks to touches that I think you can tell are brought by director Martha Coolidge. Valley Girl was written by two men, but you see Coolidge's hands, I think, in little things. There's this early throwaway moment involving one of Julie's friends, Lauren. She's played by Elizabeth Daly, who I think we probably most recognize as Dottie from Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Now, Mm -hmm. you know who I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So during this party sequence, Lauren slips into a bedroom with a classmate. And after some interaction there, we don't see every He abruptly leaves and and makes it clear he has no intention of pursuing any kind of relationship despite what they've just done. And here's that little touch. The door closes and the camera moves in on Lauren and she just whispers under her breath angrily, but no one can really hear, get out. And that's just a fascinating Mm. touch. I mean, those words, they're quiet, but they speak so loudly, especially, of course, in this time's up moment we're having and I think it has to be something Coolidge included. I was reading a little bit up on her, and her debut film, it's called Not a Pretty Picture, is a personal documentary slash drama about date rape. So, some similar concerns here. So, ultimately, Valley Girl, underrated for a number of reasons, it's got a great new wave soundtrack too. Maybe a reappreciation is on the way. We're getting a musical adaptation in theaters huh. this June. I don't know that I envisioned at any point
2: on the show a sincere reappreciation slash appreciation /appreciation of Valley Girl, but I'm glad we got it. My number four film of nineteen eighty-three is your number five, Josh. I finally caught up with Largent. And I say finally because friend of the show, Sam Smith, we hear his music picks at the end of the year, his favorite scores of the year, and he used to write features on design for the dissolve. And some know that he hosts a podcast, The Poster Boys, that's all about movie posters. So great film credentials and we've been friends and friends who talk about cinema for over a decade now, he couldn't believe, especially after doing the Brisson marathon, that I didn't see this film. And over the years it's just slipped through the cracks. And I don't even have a great excuse because other than knowing that the subject matter was going to be heavy, which you'd expect from Brisson, it's like eighty-eight minutes. Yeah. So I don't even have my well, it's too long excuse. I would agree with you that it's not the film to start with, certainly. It is his last film. It's not as satisfying, I would say, as any of the films from our Brisson marathon a few years ago. Diary of a Country Priest, Man Escape, Pickpocket, Balthazar, and Mouchette. Satisfying, of course, is a completely inappropriate word, I think, to use with Brisson because his films generally feature a lot of suffering and, as you noted, not much in the way of grace, I would say maybe this film is his bleakest in terms of really having no hope or any grace yeah, whatsoever. Argument could be made. And along those lines, that's why I think it is ultimately an incredibly satisfying final film. It feels like the culmination of his work. We see the way he deemphasizes psychology, the why these things happen. Consistent with what we saw, I think, in the marathon, the one exception that comes to mind for me, and again, there are Brisson films that we haven't seen and considered, but Diary of a Country Priest features Claude Ledoux just constantly wrestling with himself. We hear his inner turmoil mm-hmm. being expressed constantly, but otherwise, that's not something we get in films like Pickpocket or A Man Escape, the two you reference, specifically in regard to this one. The other factor that's decidedly Brissonian is the emphasis on behavior and action, the what and the how. That's what concerns him. So this is a movie. This also is what makes it kind of a challenge to watch is that every scene, almost every scene is very short. It's it's a little bit like puzzle pieces just being set down one after the other or actually dominoes is probably more appropriate because... They follow each other, and once you knock one down, they all go down. And so we get that focus on hands, but also here feet, legs, whatever. Sometimes there are characters in a scene where we don't get any master shot at all. We never actually see them in the space, their entire body. We just see what their hands are doing, what they're touching, what they're grabbing, what they're manipulating. All that matters is what they're doing with their bodies, the acts that they're committing to Brisson. That's how the
1: Pate character is
2: introduced, right? When he's at work. He's he's at work, exactly. And I think he's doing something with, with gas or oil in that scene. And we don't see his face for the longest time because we are just focused on his actions. It would be easy to say and incorrect, ultimately, to say that this is a movie that's lacking in the poetry of some of those other films. I think the fact that it's in color makes it seem automatically more plain- more quotidian and less mystical, I suppose, for lack you know of a
1: better word. It's less precious, yeah. In the precious. two terms yeah. that that can mean, you know, which it's is appropriate. Not, yeah, it's not as like r- it's not a rarity. It feels yeah. like compared yeah. to some of those other films, or as fussed over. Yes, as other films. That's Even a good way to very put intricate.
2: it. intricate, but that's it. It really is intricate. The more you really look at it, or go back and watch some scenes from it, despite how matter of fact it is and how it plays out the artistry is really on display, including one little touch I noticed that I love where we get repetition of a scene where a character is arriving at prison for the first time and then he's being brought back to prison. And in both cases, two other men, at least two other men, are also being dropped off and they're getting off the bus. And they do the exact same kind of ritual. The guards take their their packs, their suitcases, whatever they have with them, and set them on the ground. And then each guy walks off one at a time and grabs him and in each case the character that we're focused on the only character we know he isn't the first one to walk off and he's not the last one but Brisson stays on each guy he gives each character kind of their own equal share of the frame he treats them as if they are all important in that moment and in this this grand scheme of life and I would encourage people I didn't get a chance to watch more than honestly about two minutes of it but on the dvd i have the criterion blu-ray and there's a great extended it's like 50 minutes long breakdown of the movie by james quant it's a video essay that really gets into these motifs and he uses an a to z construction so a different word for each letter of the alphabet and his letter for r is repetition and reflection the use of mirrors and how frames constantly come up within the frame of this movie. So I do encourage people to seek that out if they're curious about this film, learning more about it, or they get a chance to see it and want to study up on it a little bit. And I will link to one of those excerpts from the video essay in our show notes at filmspotting.net.
1: How about that final shot as well, especially when you think about it in the context of this being Brisson's last film? Mm-hmm. It's We won't go into the details, not so much for spoilers, but because it would involve a lot of setup. But essentially, Eventually, he ends this movie and his career with a question. People gathered looking for more. Mm -hmm. And I think that's fascinating because how many filmmakers would not, towards the end of their career, feel like they're ready to give the answers now, right? We're ready ready to have a movie that makes a statement, that Mm -hmm. tells tells people – where I'm at and what everything is all about. And and Bruson, and I think this is very true throughout his career, instead is going to leave us with yet another yeah. really difficult question.
2: Absolutely, It gets back to that what and the how and not trying to give easy answers for the why. And we are left to decipher that and consider that for ourselves. I did mention that we had a poll question at filmspotting.net the past couple of weeks anticipating this review. Before we get to our top three, we're going to dive into the results of that poll. What is 1983's best comedy? We gave you these options, A Christmas Story. The King of Comedy, Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, National Lampoon's Vacation, Risky Business, or finally, is it Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy in Trading Places?
1: Sort of on its own in last place here is Risky Business with only 5% of the vote. Then the next three are bunched together. A Christmas Story got 15%, The King of Comedy, 16%, and National Lampoon's Vacation, 19%. And then up at the top here, Trading Places received 20% of the vote, while Monty Python's The Meaning of Life took it. With 24% of the vote. Tom Morris says, So I must choose
2: between Clark Griswold accidentally killing Aunt Edna's dog and The Meaning of Life's live organ transplant? I'm really torn, but Monty Python created the absurdist humor that all of the other movies came from.
1: Gotta go with Mr. Creosote. Chris Taylor went another way. I love Monty Python. Life of Brian is top five all time. But the fanboys are upvoting Meaning of Life. King of Comedy is by far the Mm. best of this lot. And that's that question. It probably is the best film of the lot.
2: It might not be the best comedy of the lot, but Life of Brian also much, much better than The Meaning of Life. Jeff in Olympia, Washington. For me, it's between Trading Places and A Christmas Story. Meaning of Life isn't the most memorable. Monty Python film, Vacation, is probably the worst of this selection. Ouch. Ouch. Risky Business is... Okay, and The King of Comedy is probably one of the best films of the year, but not going to get my vote here. Honestly, I will always gravitate more towards a Christmas story. What kid raised in cold climates wasn't bundled up by their mom until they looked like a tick about to pop? (laughs) Who didn't have that one toy they really wanted and obsessed over for Christmas? And I think many a parent can relate to the dinner scenes with the pouty kid playing with his food. Let's face it, A Christmas Story is the best. It's hilarious and relatable and a classic, Christmas or otherwise. I have a lot of regrets so far, as a parent, and I'm running out of time because they're getting old too quickly. But one of my great regrets is I've been now through 15, 15 Christmases as a father, and we have yet to watch a Christmas story as yeah, a family. Yeah, we haven't done it either yet. We'll have to get to that every next year. Every holiday, every Christmas and Thanksgiving,
1: I say this is the time we're going to do it. And I keep failing. Christmas 2018. Mm. It'll happen. Jeffrey Post said, Trading places is where my heart goes. The entire group of scenes with Dan Aykroyd in the Santa suit being one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. I'm going to botch this. I've got all the bad drugs here. Let's let Aykroyd do it. I'm making a citizen's arrest. This man is a drug dealer. Look, look here in his office drawer. He's got all the bad drugs here. Marijuana joints, pills, Quaalude, Valium,
0: yellow ones, red ones, cocaine grinder, Drug needles, he's the pusher, not me.
2: Aykroyd is great as the drunk, belligerent Santa. Scott says Trading Places, more on that film is not only the best comedy of 83, it's the best comedy of all time, Merry New Year. Okay. Wow, best comedy of all time. Okay, bold, bold words there from Scott. Let's get back to our countdown now. The top five films of 83, not just focusing on the comedies, and I'm looking here to see, I'm going to go ahead and say this, Unless you count one of these very dramatic films, satirical films, a comedy, there's not a lot of laughs in my next three picks. Josh, what about you?
1: Well, yeah, I think I'm going to be in the same situation about how we define one of these. But my number three, I didn't laugh at all during. Okay. This is going to be, this is going to be pretty brief. Because it's Video so yeah. we'll get to most of my thoughts in our blind spotting review. Okay. Just a real quick synopsis here for those unfamiliar with Video Jerome. James Woods plays a sleazy TV exec who tries to track down a snuff show, and in the process, he begins to suffer these severe and grotesque hallucinations. I'm just going to share a brief story here, and I mentioned this on Twitter <laughs> to the horror of people. Okay. I'm watching Videodrome, okay, where there are hallucinations involving technology, Mm -hmm. and one of these is when James Wood's TV set starts to kind of pulsate and essentially come to life. Right. The screen freezes with that image on it, and there's, like, a garbling and a whirring coming out of my DVD player. Oh, no. I kid you not. It froze? well, I did find out what it was, but I froze because <laughs> I was not going near the thing. It was a trap. It was trying to get me <laughs> That's closer eerie. to it. That's eerie. That's creepy. I've never had like anything like that in watching a movie. It ended up – finally got the disc out. It took a little while and there was like a, a crack on the underside. So mm. uh, there was a logical explanation, but for a few minutes there, <laughs> really disturbing. We'll get into – yeah maybe why when we get to our review.
2: Yeah, I'm sure we will. My number three is Ingmar Bergman's Fanny and Alexander, a movie that takes place in turn of the 20th century Sweden. It's supposedly Bergman's most autobiographical film. And some people may think of this as a 1982 film. Indeed, that is how it is listed over at IMDb. I think it was released in Sweden and Norway, maybe elsewhere in 82. But it was an 83 film in the US. It won oscars in 84 at the academy awards actually took home four out of its six nominations i've never seen the full television version of fanny and alexander that's how it originated it was over five hours long i love it enough i would be more than happy to sit down if i could find the time and take in all five hours as it is the theatrical version the film version is just over three at 188 minutes Like Brisson, there's some crossover here that I'm going to explore a little bit. It was meant to be his final film. Turned out it wasn't, but that's how he envisioned it. Maybe that's why he made it his most sumptuous and his most autobiographical, his most personal. And I look back at my notes from a Bergman marathon that was done here on Film Spotting, I think in 2008. And I said, kind of like Largent, it's a culmination of everything we've seen from Bergman through the marathon. It was the last film in that series. You get the silence of God, of course our capacity to be inhumane and hurtful, the true anguish, the full spectrum of anguish in life. So this sounds like Brisson quite a bit, right? Mm -hmm. But we also get in Fanny, humor, some humor, and love. And we see our capacity to be kind and generous. So there's pain and there's suffering, but also pleasure and joy and... All rendered gorgeously, of course, by cinematographer Sven Nykvist. Largent was the stripped-down movie, like we talked about, its most kind of basic elements, watching characters act. You could call it austere, a word that probably applies to a lot of Brisson's work. In contrast, Fanny is ornate, and it wants us to linger on every single frame and connect with the environment, which is mainly this lavish Ekdal home, the same way the characters do when they're in that space. The other thing we never get in Bresson that I can think of, even though it's exploring spiritual themes in many cases, you don't get any kind of supernaturalism. You don't get magical realism. There's no magic at all in brasson 's world. It's about everyday life and everyday suffering, you do get characters sometimes who are striving for something outside of the here and now, but it's mostly about them never attaining that or never witnessing it. Here in Fanny and Alexander, there's actual magic and ghosts and really the the full spectrum of life and even those
1: things that transcend our everyday experiences on display in Fanny and Alexander. So let's go from Bergman to a complimentary filmmaker, I think you can say. It's Andrei Tarkovsky. I've got Nostalgia at number two. Now, in 2015, we did our Top 5 Cannes Best Director winners, and that's when I finally took the occasion to watch Nostalgia. You can listen to my... Thoughts on it on episode 562. I'm not going to repeat a lot of those here, but basically, this follows a Russian poet who takes a research trip to a spa town in Italy and he meets a religious fanatic there. I do want to reiterate the idea I suggested on that episode of Tarkovsky as a sorcerer because nostalgia is really the film that clarified that for me. Just the way he employs elements of nature to conjure. This mixture of reality, dreams, and visions, and memories. I think this happens in all of his films, but especially here. The town's natural spies believe to have these healing powers, and this mist drifts across the grounds from it. That It's just like an insinuating spell. Nostalgia is up there for me with other Tarkovsky masterworks like Solaris, The Sacrifice, Stalker. So really, when you think about it, one of the all-time greats released one of his greatest films in 1983. It's
2: fitting, I suppose, that on a show where we are covering one of our big blind spots, Videodrome, you— go with a movie that is a huge blind spot for me. And I've seen some Tarkovsky mainly because of a very old film spotting marathon again. We did some overlooked tours, and we watched Solaris. And I've seen The Sacrifice as part of a class I taught one summer. But Nostalgia and Stalker, two huge misses for me.
1: Yeah, and I think Stalker is probably the more common one. This is more similar to Largent, I would say, where people are aware of but might not talk about quite as much as, right. as his other films.
2: My number two film of 1983 is Martin Scorsese's The King of Comedy, and you noted we haven't gotten to our full thoughts yet on Videodrome, but a little bit of crossover, Josh. Certainly, with that film, one of them, very superficially, is there are two movies that happen to have characters in it named Masha. Missed that. Both movies of a woman named Masha, which is kind of weird. But I'm sure we're going to get into the prescience of Videodrome, what it is foretold in some ways specifically in how it relates to our relationship to television and the dark side of television and the dark side of celebrity well that's what the king of comedy is all about of course and there is something in rupert's character rupert pupkin played wonderfully by robert de niro who stars in this movie as someone who is stalking basically jerry lewis's tv host jerry langford he's kind of a a johnny carson tonight show Figure, and he just wants to be him so badly that he will go to whatever lengths he has to in order to end up on that show and get his piece of fame and fortune. And there is something in Rupert's overwhelming self-centeredness and narcissism and need to be famous that I think foreshadows basically all of social media for the past 10 years, <laughs> you could argue. Now I'm envisioning Rupert Pupkin's Twitter account. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> this is a film that was a blind spot for me. For a long time, back on episode 267 of the show, we did our top five movies about comedy, and I had to admit there that I had never seen it. Caught up with it sometime after that, and it ended up on my top five dramatic performances by comedic actors, Jerry Lewis, as Jerry Langford, and my top five De Niro scenes. I had a scene at number two from The King of Comedy, the basement fake talk show scene, with his mom yelling yelling at him (laughs) from the basement, what is he doing? It's perfect. De Niro is perfect. He's basically an unhinged... Travis Bickle like character. Yes. But unlike Travis Bickle is endearing somehow. He's actually endearing while also being, of course, incredibly annoying as you imagine yourself being bothered by someone as relentless as him every day. He's positive. He's, he's the he son of Travis Bickle. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> and I could probably say more, but I know that you just caught up with it recently. It's been maybe five or six years since I've seen it. And I also happen to know, spoiler alert, it's your number one. So what did you end up loving about The King of Comedy when you just finally
1: saw it a week or two ago? Yeah, and this is really, even beyond Videodrome, the one I needed to catch up with the most before making this list. A huge blind spot for me, and no surprise to me that it did end up right here at number one. I knew it was going to be right up my alley. Uh, the sort of material, the performers, the filmmakers involved. I could just watch that awkward electricity that's between De Niro and Lewis mm-hmm. all day, I know. and and you come out of this at least I did just wishing there were more scenes of them. It it seems like there aren't that many, but maybe that's just because I wanted together. more. You know, yeah, the two of them interacting. I mean, these interchanges are it's a very delicate comic display of uh, faux politeness and and passive aggression. It's just cringe comedy of the highest order. I think, for me, a defining scene is probably the moment when Rupert crashes Jerry at his country house and, and brings a date and pretends that he's been invited there for the weekend.
0: How did you get here? You walk in the door. What do you mean, how did we get here? Jerry, what's the matter with you? How did you get here? Look, I think you're upset. I'm going to leave my material here. We'll talk later. You've got more important things to worry about. We'll just take a stroll around, wait till lunchtime. Did anyone ever tell you you're a moron? You know, Jerry, I want to tell you something. Ordinarily, I wouldn't allow anybody to speak that way about Rita. But since it's you, I know you're only kidding. (laughs) He's a real character. Rupert, he's saying he wants us to go. No, he's not saying that. Jerry, tell her that. You're not saying that. He's not saying that at all. Call the station, John. Where are you going, Rita? Rita? There'll be a cab here in five or ten minutes. I'd appreciate it if you'd wait at the gate and use it. Why, are you going someplace? (laughs) (laughs) No, you are.
1: For me, the question hanging over this movie is really, you know, in Rupert's head, does he really believe something like has he been invited? But even does he really believe he's talented? You know, he he acts Mm -hmm. like it, he talks like it. Right. But you just wonder how deluded is this guy? And I think that's part of the brilliance of De Niro's performance. He's very funny, but, and I don't mean funny as a comedian. Like, the the performance is funny by revealing the ridiculousness of Rupert, but Mm -hmm. not in a way that I think makes it seem as if De Niro's in on the joke, right? He's not, it's not as if he knows that Rupert is a nut job. Right. Instead, he, He's just so – no surprise, it's De Niro. He's so burrowed into the role, but I think really into that pain that we know mm-hmm. must be behind his life of denial. And, and you know, eventually we do get hints of that. The other thing I was just waiting for in this film is, come on, I understand why you're not going to show us his stand-up act. I get that choice, but I really want to see it. Yeah. And when we see it – yeah. It does not disappoint.
2: No, it doesn't. I think that's actually one of the most brilliant touches of the film, and mm-hmm. we won't get into it too much here for those who haven't seen it, but I was expecting that to go a certain way, and for me anyway, Scorsese completely challenged it. And then when you reconsider the whole film, and you do look at all of those scenes where he is working on his material, it could only play out that way yeah. at the end. And I think that, again, just kind of challenges our idea of who
1: this Rupert Pupkin character is. Yeah, and and, and it exemplifies the tragedy, too, because... Comedians talk about and we're often told you mine your pain for laughs. Right. And so that's what's going on here. But he's not funny. And, and so then what do you get then? And, and that's what the king of comedy is. So my favorite film of 83.
2: It is obviously a great choice just for me. Not as great. As The film that in 1983, I would have told you, was my favorite film, and I'm going to contend that eight-year-old me got it right, and that it is still the best film of 1983. It is The Right Stuff, directed by Philip Kaufman, the movie that chronicles the 15 years or so in the space race, America trying to put a man into space, that Mercury 7 program. I look back at some old top fives, and who knows after the first 200, 300 shows, where else it might have appeared. I don't feel like it's been talked about a lot on this show, and yet, based on the first couple years of film spotting, I don't know how this didn't go into the pantheon and be put away forever, especially because at the time, the co-host of the show, now our producer, Sam Van Halgren, he also equally adored this movie. So we had every excuse and every reason to do it. On 201, I had it in my top five movies about the 1960s, Episode 126 and 27, we had it on our joint Pantheon list of the best movies made in the 1980s. Episode 119, my top five true stories. Episode 112, top five movie scores. Episode 97, top five movies about America. And then going all the way back to episode 14, top five nostalgia movies. There it was, number See, one.
1: And I feel like it has been talked about a lot in the show, and I wasn't really? even around then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I I knew this was a favorite of yours. Yeah. And and here's here's how much I give to the show, Adam. I watched all sixteen hours in awesome. preparation. Awesome.
2: <laughs> I appreciate that, even though, you know, your your rating on Letterboxd, at least it was positive. It I was, liked it. Yeah, you Good liked film. it. Okay. Let's put Good it film. in the paper. Yeah, yeah, why don't you why don't you stop? Why don't you <laughs> just stop? I, I don't want to hear more. Go um, on. When I think about my childhood in movies. It's one of the first, if not the first movie that pops into my head. I can instantly take myself back to watching various scenes from the right stuff. I became obsessed with jets and pilots and with astronauts after seeing it. I started reading biographies of the astronauts. Like, I remember going to my library and actually finding a biography of Gus Grissom, the guy who's the second man in space and ultimately tragically died as part of the Apollo program, but he's kind of disgraced at the end of The Right Stuff when you see what goes wrong, what transpires at the end of his launch into space. But I was so fascinated by all of those characters that I just wanted to learn more. Oddly, I still have never read the Tom Wolf source material. Really, I can't figure that. I will get to it at some point. I assume that book gets at what this movie taps into, which is the mythic nature of this whole endeavor... And this movie does reinforce those myths. There's no doubt about it, the way it lionizes these men. But it is also just cynical or at least knowing enough to show the foibles of these men, how heroes can be exploited. As Philip Kaufman, the director, noted in an oral history of The Right Stuff that came out, I think, a few years ago, it's the craziness of the American circus. And the movie does certainly explore that, but it also shows us how the heroes can exploit that circus to their own goals as well there's that great scene where the media is just outside flashing their cameras and they're lobbying for a window in the capsule the scientists the engineers they don't understand why these guys in space would need a window or why they would need to have any control over the space capsule at all and they say the press They want Buck Rogers. That's what the people at home, that's what the people running the newspapers want, and that's us. So we matter, and you're going to have to listen to us. So it's mythologizing, but at the same time, I think it's deconstructing how those myths are being formed. And it's about some of my favorite cinematic subjects. It's about ambition, striving for greatness, transcendence even. It's about professionalism. It's about people doing their jobs. It's about camaraderie among these men. And maybe because I was eight, it was always mysterious to me. And I think some of that mystery still comes through. All of the scenes with Chuck Yeager, him chasing that demon, the fact that Yeager's a part of this at all, kind of hanging over what the other pilots are doing when... They're having those fun conversations about who the true greatest pilot of all time is. The movie shows us who the real greatest pilot of all time is unequivocally Chuck Yeager. He's not there. He's chosen to bow out. He's decided this isn't the next mission or exploration for him. So I think there is that undercutting of that heroism that's going on. The title says the right stuff. And the movie makes a case that Chuck Yeager is the guy who probably has the most of that stuff. And the mystery... Of course, that I love is only heightened by Sam Shepard playing Chuck Yeager. Yeah, he's the so enigma good. that is Sam Shepard, he really taps into that desire. And just where it so easily,
1: yeah. too, right? Yeah. The, that legend status, which could have That's been it. too much. It's just like a natural fit for him in this film. Also, natural fits. This is where
2: I discovered the unending coolness and charm of Dennis Quaid. Love him as Gordo Cooper. He's still one of my favorite actors and always will be. And they're just some really memorable, beautiful images shot by the great cinematographer, Caleb Deschanel. The Right Stuff, still my number one.
0: Say there, Yeager. Sir? We were just talking to uh, Slick here about the sound barrier. Is that right? And we feel that the X-1 is ready to have a go at it. We think the X-1's got the answer to go beyond Mach 1. There is any, yeah. So what do you think, yeah? Well, I'll tell you what, half these engineers never been off the ground, you know. I mean,
1: they're liable to tell you that the sound barrier is a brick wall in the sky, it'll rip your ears off if you try to go through
0: it. If you ask me, I don't believe the damn thing even exists. Waitress, a drink from Mr. Yeager here. No, thanks, I got one. So, do you think you want to have a go at it? I might. But uh, since, as you say, this sound barrier doesn't really exist, uh, how much... How much you got? I'm just joking. The Air Force is paying me already. Ain't that right, sir? Well, sure, Yeager, but... So when do we go? Well, how about tomorrow morning? I'll be there.
1: This is not to say that it's a nostalgic pick, because I think you're right about it puncturing myths, and, and it does some of those other things that an adult viewer would appreciate, but it's also at the same time the perfect movie to see when you're a nine or Mm 10-year-old boy. And it's because it does that mythologizing so well. And it is particularly masculinely romantic. So if you're, a little boy wondering yes. how what does it mean to be a man i'm not saying this is the guidebook that you need to know no, but you're, you're i think it's a little going to be attracted to it you're going to be attracted to it and yeah. i think it's if anything it's a little limited right you mentioned how they they kind of play off the engineers and the scientists mm-hmm. well the movie throughout has no patience for men who aren't pilots yeah. you know like like the nerds are clearly not men. That's this movie's position. Mm. So if you're but you know, if you're a kid, a little boy, trying to figure these things out, I can see how this is like, oh, this is what it is and that looks great. Right. You know, and, and there are good things and bad things yeah. about that. But I, I do wish I had seen it. I I would have been just like you if I'd seen it at that age, gobbling a lot of this stuff
2: up. So, those are our top five films of 1983. We would love to hear your choices, nostalgia-tinted or otherwise. Feedback at Filmspotting.net. What about the movies, Josh, that you're pretty sure if you had a podcast or a radio show in 1983, (laughs) God help us all, and you were going to list your top five movies
1: then? What would they have been? Well, we're back to Ewoks at this point, then, <laughs> and it would have been an all Ewok show. Right. You know, I remember even at like nine, being a little like, "Oh, what's happening to my Star Wars with the Ewoks?" I wasn't. I wasn't <laughs> mad about it, but I remember raising my eyebrows. Okay. It would have been Return of the Jedi. Would have been my number one film. National Lampoon's Vacation. That you know, that was a sort of sophisticated top five film of nineteen eighty three. I would have appreciated in eighty five as well. How about Octopussy? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Two Bond films came out that year. Yeah, Yeah. I know. We had The Last of Connery and then went into Roger Moore. And I've already established that at that age I was a Roger Moore guy, so (laughs) Octopussy would have made my list. How about Never Cry Wolf? This would have been my number five in 83. I wanted to be that sort of animal explorer at that age. Since I didn't see the right stuff and didn't want to be an astronaut, I I wanted to go out and explore the wolves. (laughs)
2: I love that that adventurous spirit was in you even then. Back in 1983, three movies I would have had to consider. Trading Places, Flashdance. Oh, I love me some Flashdance when I was eight. And The Outsiders, one of those four Tom Cruise releases that year. Number five, maybe it would have been higher because I do remember wearing out the VHS tape, but that's where I have Return of the Jedi. My number four, Matthew Broderick, War Games. Yeah. Oh, loved War Games. Number three, Michael Keaton in Mr. Mom. Number two... My current number five, National Lampoon's Vacation. And if I am excluding The Right Stuff, which for this little process I'm going to, my number one, the movie that I did honestly watch even more than The Right Stuff, Eddie and the Cruisers. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Did did that show you how to be a man? No. No, it didn't. But it did, I think, plant the seed that made me want to become a musician. Okay. Learn how to play an instrument. There I think Eddie and the Cruisers had a huge part to do with that. As I have admitted embarrassingly here on the show, 1983, inspired by Eddie and the Cruisers, also is the year where I formed my first band, even though I couldn't sing or actually at the time play a musical instrument. We were called Adam and the Cruisers. <laughs> of course you were.
1: <laughs> very, had to get your name right very there at original. the original. Huh? Oh, yeah. Well, I was the... Making clear I was who's in charge
2: here. Yeah. how about the films from 83 that are
1: right now your honorable mentions any others you want to throw out my legit top 10 now yeah what are six through 10 okay i would definitely i mentioned national lampoon's vacation is number six i caught up with my first con ichikawa film in preparation for this list called the makioka sisters it's really this gorgeous and astute study of family dynamics that that happens to also be almost as funny as a Jane Austen novel, it works a lot like one of her novels did. So that would be my number seven. Return of the Jedi, I'm sticking with at number eight. Trading Places, I really like to. I think it holds up. I did love it then, is number nine. And then A Christmas Story squeaks in at 10.
2: Yeah, some of those are among my honorable mentions, including Trading Places and A Christmas Story. I have to give some love to Terms of Endearment, the big Oscar winner that year. Cronenberg, not only Videodrome, but The Dead Zone for 1983, a movie I love starring Christopher Walken the big chill. I've got a soft spot for that movie. Local Hero, directed by Bill Forsyth, would be another one, though definitely not a movie I saw in 1983.
1: So let me ask you about this. It's not a theatrical release, but this terrified me in 83. And maybe you didn't see it because you were so busy watching HBO, you didn't watch free TV. Mm-hmm. Do you remember Testament? No. About the family, like in the wake of this nuclear attack in America? No, not, not at all. I don't know why If this was just on repeat over the summer or what, but it terrified huh. me at that age. I, I don't know if anyone else remembers <laughs> Testament, but it was rough stuff. We do
2: have one more title. At least we want to sneak in here, though. This comes to us via a listener and his pick for the number one film of 1983.
0: Hey guys, Nick here. I am from Akron, Ohio on Twitter and I host the TV Tropes podcast on the Tropes. And I'm calling in with my favorite film of 1983, which is Chris Marker's Sans Soleil or Sunless, which was ranked the third best documentary of all time by the 2012 Sight and Sound poll. On its surface, this is a travelogue through Asia and Africa and Europe. And it's a beautifully shot film, but like the best documentaries, it excels by breaking beyond the constraints of the documentary form, weaving in fictional narrative elements. In a lyrical beauty, which makes this movie feel more of a part of the French New Wave than traditional documentary, which allows Marker to become more philosophical, and like a lot of his other work, he delves into heady subjects like time and the nature of memory. Chris Marker is one of my favorite filmmakers, but he's someone who's kind of criminally underrated right now, though he does still have some prominent disciples, including the reigning Golden Brick winner Koganata, and I think even more directly, Theo Anthony, whose debut feature rat film from last year. Seems like a direct descendant of Sans soleil including a bizarre fascination with crappy-looking video games. If you haven't seen it, Sans soleil is currently streaming on Filmstruck, as is his short La Jete, which is my number one favorite film of all time. And since it's so easy to see these movies, I think Chris Marker would be a great film-spotting marathon subject. So you guys should get on that. All right, thanks.
2: Great stuff there from Nick. And yes, Chris Marker would be a perfect candidate for a marathon, Josh, because sans soleil is one embarrassing blind spot for me. Koganata will be so disappointed when he hears this show. Blind spot for me as well. The last few titles then I'll mention are other blind spots just because I could see them coming up in the mailbag. Five Oscar nominations that year for The Dresser, which I'm familiar with. Albert Finney in that movie, but haven't seen. I've never seen Silkwood. I've never seen Tender Mercies, which did win two Oscars. Robert Duvall as a musician in that one and Barbara Streisand's Yentl, Unseen by Me Educating Rita, another one I remember but never saw. That had three Oscar nominations, as did, by the way, War Games. War Games got three Oscar really? nominations. I didn't look at the categories, but that really sound, did surprise me. Sound Maybe. design. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Sound mixing. No, you know what? I know for a fact that one of them, this blew me away. One of them was Best Cinematography. Oh, Okay. So something I missed there as an eight-year-old in the aesthetic approach of War Games. Two movies, Josh. One got four Oscar nominations. One got two that I had never even heard of. Cross Creek and Ruben Ruben. New to me. Probably wouldn't have come up from listeners now that I think about it. But we would love to hear any picks or any comments you have about the top five films of 1983. Just email us, feedback at filmspotting.net.
1: Massacre Theater is next. Our selection this week, among our most obscure, unless you happen to live on my block in 1983, where this movie was very popular. Then it'll be time to strap on the VR headgear for our blind spotting review of Videodrome. Don't do it. Stay with us.
0: Of struggle and suffering. Even though many old and famous states have fallen into the grip of the Nazi rule, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be.
2: Gary Oldman in his Oscar nominated turn as Winston Churchill in Darkest Hour, directed by Joe Wright. Gary Oldman, a great actor, and Joe Wright has made some very good films, including, for me, one of the best of 2007, Atonement, also Hannah. But this is a movie that we have skipped, Josh, up to this point. Missed it throughout the entire award season, our top 10 homework. Didn't bother to see it. We probably would have skipped it altogether if not for Oldman's nomination. More importantly, the fact that it's a Best Picture nominee. It's the only one of those nine nominees that we both haven't seen.
1: Right, And that's probably not fair that we would have skipped it to Oldman or Wright. I mean, I've liked a number of his films as well. I think Atonement is is really strong. And Anna Karenina is not that bad. Mm, no, it's not
2: that bad at all. And to force ourselves to finally catch up with Darkest Hour, looking at the slate of movies being released we realize that this might be an opportunity for us to talk about Darkest Hour. So we're going to do a little Oscar catch-up next week and give some time to that movie. And our top five, we've been going back and forth. As people hear this, we probably have settled one way or another, but we will take any encouragement or any suggestions at the last minute. If you want to write in, feedback at filmspotting.net. We've landed so far on doing a top five Gary Oldman performances. He certainly has enough good performances to great performances to choose from. But we considered maybe something about movie speeches. We had another one that we were giving a lot of weight to, but Uh, we were thinking about
1: major makeup performances, not creature makeup, but more dramatic performances given under prosthetics or something where you wouldn't recognize the person. I think at this point, maybe what Might be most helpful is some comments about what makes Oldman special as an actor, because I think you and I both recognize that he is and appreciate many of his performances, but don't have that sort of immediate grasp of that Mm -hmm. or passion about a lot of his performances. So if we are headed that way, hearing from some of those who have really been following him closely, that might be helpful in making our list. That's a great point. And
2: something that might come up in that feedback is his chameleon like nature as an actor we both noted that when you watch some of those videos or look at some of those lists of the so-called best performances that are using prosthetics or heavy makeup or unrecognizable actors and actresses There's a lot of Gary Oldman in Mm -hmm. there, right? So I don't know if that's what makes him truly special or if it's something else entirely. We would love to hear from you on that. We do always encourage you to check out our film spotting merch over at FilmSpotting.net. You can also check out Josh's book, Movies Are Prayers, there. FilmSpotting.net slash shop. FilmSpotting.net slash events is where you can find movie passes. If you're in the Chicago area, want to see movies for free, Most often, before they come out and make all of your friends jealous, that is where you can find those passes. As of this taping, we don't have any new passes up, but you never know. Any moment, we could be adding one or two or three new movies to that list. We also thank everyone who went to filmspotting.net slash survey. It's the best survey you can take. One question. It will take you five to 10 seconds to answer this question and it is a question and your answers will go a long way we think to helping us improve the show and just get a sense of your take on one of the aspects of the show which is how we integrate advertising into our episodes we would love to hear from you there
1: And I don't have a survey set up for this, but I'm looking for some advice in terms of a film spotting meetup location in Seattle. I'm heading out that way. Saturday, February 24, I'm going to be at Seattle University's Search for Meaning Festival, talking about movies, our prayers there. The night before that, so Friday the 23rd, we're going to have a film spotting meetup. And if people know of a place where we can actually talk, you know, if there's a group of 10 to 15, we can all hear each other, a pub or a brewery and in the vicinity of Seattle University would be nice. Pass along that info to us either on social media, I'm Larson on Film, or via feedback at filmspotting.net. And then once we get that settled, we'll definitely put the word out.
2: Yeah, we do have some basic details on that events page at filmspotting.net, including info about the Search for Meaning Festival and how to get tickets for that. But once we have isolated a venue for Josh and his debauchery with filmspotting listeners... We will post it there. It'll be family. Friendly. <laughs> of course it will. We do also have a new film spotting marathon starting very soon. I would say within the next two weeks is the plan. All right. Okay. I was wondering about that. Yeah. So we do have to set a date, but we're envisioning two weeks from this episode. You can go to filmspotting.net and click on marathons to see that lineup. We're looking at the work of Vincente Minnelli. Classic. Hollywood a bunch of films there that we've been meaning to catch up with for some time blind spots and that's what these marathons are really all about is filling in those blind spots those holes in our cinema education we hope many of you will follow along again filmspotting.net and click on marathons it's time now for massacre theater this is the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a prize a couple weeks back we massacred this scene Here's the thing I don't give a top any f- about your moral conundrum, you meat-headed sh- sack. That's more or less the thing. And I want you to go out there, you, nobody
1: else, none of your little minions. I want you to go out there,
0: and I want you to punish the person who's responsible. Murdering this
2: poor little rabbit. (laughs) Is that understood?
1: So that was Daniel Day Lewis as Bill the Butcher Cutting with John C. Riley's Happy Jack Mulroney in Gangs of New York. It was written by Jay Cox, Kenneth Lonergan, and Steven Zalian, and directed, of course, by Martin Scorsese.
2: That massacre part of a show that included our review of Phantom Thread, along with our twenty eighteen movie preview for the connections. Between those films and that massacre, we turn to film spotting listeners, including Nate Emery
1: in Greenville, South Carolina. The obvious connection here is Daniel Day-Lewis gives leading performances in both Gangs and Phantom Thread. One of the not-so-obvious connections is both the roles of Bill the Butcher Cutting and Reynolds Woodcock were nominated for Best Actor in a Leading Role Oscar. A second more prediction-based correlation is Day-Lewis will have lost both times to actors portraying real-life characters in films set in World War II. Adrian Brody took home the prize in 2002 for his role in Roman Polanski's The Pianist. How about that? And Gary Oldman is this year's frontrunner for his transformative take on Winston Churchill in Joe Wright's Darkest Hour. For what it's worth, the Academy has yet to invite me into its membership, but my vote for Best Actor would have gone to the collective voice work of Josh Larson. Inspired, as always, thanks for all the great (laughs) content week after week. Well, thank you, Nate.
2: Yeah. Sam Meester in Decatur, Illinois. This scene features John C. Riley and Day Lewis, both known for great performances, Pete T. Anderson movies and both gangs in Phantom Thread are period dramas with an enigmatic relationship between a master and a protege at their center and in both films the protege seems to be conflicted about whether to kill the master. There you go. Well done.
1: Aaron Crabtree says the obvious connection is Daniel Day-Lewis. The less obvious connection is Richard Graham who plays the reporter George Riley in Phantom Thread and Harvey one of Bill the Butcher's gang. that's a poll. That was some research there. (laughs) Wow. Tom in
2: Westfield, New Jersey writes the most obvious connection would be day lewis but also in this episode you asked your top five questions about the upcoming movie year it was our 2018 preview and in my mind there is no more pressing question in the collective 2018 film spotting universe than this will the title character of peter rabbit out february 9th finally acquire a pair of pants to go with that jacket (laughs) judging by the trailer i don't think so more love for Josh. Dustin Thornton writes, please tell me that Josh is not retiring like Daniel Day-Lewis claims he is
1: going to. Do you have any news to break here on the show? Well, I thought about it, but I think I'm going to hold out for that lifetime achievement. Yeah, hold out Lord for Oscar. that. I, I need a few more performances under uh, my belt
2: to get that. Another connection that many listeners noted is that Martin Scorsese's The Irishman with De Niro and Joe Pesci and Al Pacino, if I remember correctly, Josh – is supposed to be coming out in twenty eighteen, though I didn't consider it for my list because everything I saw was saying twenty nineteen. Yeah, that was my impression. But Netflix too. is going to have Scorsese's latest tying in, of course, with his gangs of New York. Go ahead and reach into the film spotting hat, not brimming, despite your brilliant voice work. Hmm. hmm. Most listeners didn't know what we were going after in that scene. You can reach in and pick out the lucky winner. The winner is Andy Charles. He's from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Congratulations, Andy. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you you up with your very own film spotting T-shirt.
0: Come down. Horace, When of fellow's dead, the play is over. Say what you have to say with speed and put the audience out of their misery.
2: So we'll just say it. This is a 1983 movie, Josh. Anything else you want to give? You're you want so, to
1: offer up? You're so concerned before that no we perform one this. We'll have any idea of what film this is. I, I contend there are scores. Of listeners who treasured this picture in 1983. For me. And by scores, for I mean. Me this defeats by, by the scores, whole purpose of Massacre Theater. I mean 11 people.
2: <laughs> I bet we get exactly 11 11 entries, entries? Yeah. okay i'm gonna pick the over okay so basically once those 11 come in you'll have your own little fan club this will oh, be kind I of like this. your your secret handshake knowing this movie love and loving this
1: movie. this movie and it's also one of those where you even watch this scene now as an adult yeah and you're, you're just really embarrassed <laughs> i was embarrassed at eight years old i remember
2: seeing this movie on all oh, the time
1: yeah. the you title alone mr sophisticated the title watching alone. The
2: right stuff like I'm oh too yeah. cool for that The title alone just, it it scared me away for some reason. I'm not sure why. There are two preposterously named characters in this scene. We've merged into one preposterously named character. We should just give the names. Yeah, we should. Honestly, that's not going to give anything away, is it? Okay, I think I start this off. So you're going to give me the action. I've been waiting to do this for 30 years. (laughs) And action. Now we have no way to find the Black Fortress
1: there is one who might help who the widow of the web uh, that creature helps no one and none who go there return she has great powers uh, to kill she may not kill me for i know her name her name is death and, and seen. <laughs>
2: See, my voice. You almost got low enough. My my voice was way too high. Yeah. At nine. You had to to wait 30 years. (laughs) If you know what film we just massacred, you have to turn in your film spotting card and you never get to listen again. (laughs) (laughs) You can also email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, February 12th. Man, was this movie
1: nerdy. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. To get official massacre theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. Come on, Masha,
0: what are we talking about? Video do. What you see on that show, it's for real. It's not acting. It's snuff TV. I don't believe it. So, don't believe. Why do it for real? It's easier and safer to fake it. Because it has something that you don't have, Max. It has a philosophy, and that is what makes it dangerous. Whose philosophy?
1: That was Lynn Gorman with James Woods in David Cronenberg's Videodrome. Adam, one of the pleasures of our blind spotting and sacred cow reviews, where we get a chance to return to older movies, is coming across those that now in retrospect seem incredibly prescient. Well, David Cronenberg's Videodrome, his second film along with The Dead Zone to be released in 1983, begins this way. A TV set flickers to life in a dark room, and we see and hear these words, Civic TV, the one you take to bed with you. These days, we call it Netflix and just lay in bed with our laptops propped on our stomachs. So yes, Videodrome is prescient. Some 15 years before David Foster Wallace's infinite jest, it envisioned our future of authoritarian entertainment. But the movie is also interested in a question that's really been with us for ages. How much does what we watch affect us? James Woods, in maximum sleaze mode, plays Max Wren, an executive at a low-frequency network that specializes in sensationalistic programming. In search of something harder and edgier than what he's been peddling, Wren comes across a mysterious video series called Videodrome that involves nudity, torture, and murder. He smells a hit, but can't quite trace the source of the program. As he pursues his investigation and watches more of Videodrome, he begins to suffer increasingly awful hallucinations. I do want to see if we can suss out where Videodrome stands on that question, Adam. Does it suggest there is a correlation between what we watch and how we behave? Or is it a satire of such a claim? Another option, of course, is that the movie's just messing with us. But before we get into that, let's start somewhere more concrete. Well, gooey, really. Which of the distinctly (laughs) Cronenbergian hallucinations did you find most disturbing? Well, we'll get there. And I would say it is messing with us
2: a little bit. I mean, it has to be, right? This is screwy film and screwy in some really enjoyable ways i would be lying if i didn't say that i feel like i hate disclaimers but i feel like i need at least one more viewing of this movie before i really felt like i could answer you cogently i'm gonna give it my best shot though
1: no that's fair because it's a shapeshifter, right in one second you think oh here's where it's landing and then the next one it's it's doing the opposite yeah i do think It's mostly a satire,
2: and the way I will come at that is to say that I do think it's possible Cronenberg is making a distinction here between what we watch and how we react to it and who we maybe fundamentally are. In other words, of course what we watch affects us. Cronenberg would say that. You can pick your provocation, the nature of that provocation, whether it involves graphic sex or violence or extreme behavior of whatever sort, and show it to people and we're going to react. We are naturally going to react, and we are going to feel one way about it. But does repeated exposure to bad, quote-unquote bad content, turn us into bad people, or do we already kind of have that badness in us already to varying degrees? I think it's probably more the latter than the former. And I think that it is notable here that the culprit in causing these hallucinations in damaging viewers, which this Videodrome show is doing, we learn, is a signal that's embedded within the content, not the content itself. So for me, the movie is more about, and this is where I will tell you my most disturbing vision, the subject Cronenberg has explored over and over again in so many movies, where humanity and technology converge. In this case, the body and technology literally becoming one. So when we see James Woods sitting on his couch <laughs> and his arm goes into his stomach and forms a hole that turns him into a living, breathing VCR, <laughs> that's the one that stuck with me. I'm not good with body horror in general. And from that point on, there is a fair amount of it here. That moment and and that joke, that gag, if you will, him becoming a VCR is It's clever, but it's sick and it's in a way very dated. It's kind of quaint to think back on that now being a VCR, of course, at the time in 83, that was the height of technology, but we do so live our lives through our televisions and our perceptions of reality that we might as well be part of the TV. And so how this movie isn't dated at all and in fact is prescient and you touched on a couple ways, but is how we see today, all of us attached to our mobile phones at all times of the day. And we are so reliant on them that we have effectively, they're extensions of our limbs. They have merged with us. We have merged with that technology in a way that I think based on watching this film, you could argue Cronenberg foresaw or at least forewarned. And we maybe even exceeded it in some way. So I don't think he's making a moral statement here beyond the political statement he's making, and I think we will probably get into that a little bit. I think, if anything, he is probably more satirizing the type of people who would make those kind of moral judgments.
1: Yeah, I think you're right, because what we also find out about this signal that's embedded in the Videodrome tapes is it's being put out by a group whose motive is almost to draw out those they consider purient. Mm -hmm. And then get rid of them. Right. So there's like this purified motivation that's horrifying. And Now, the assumption on that group, though, ironically, relates to where you said you were leaning where it's not the content as much as something that's already inside of us, right? Because mm-hmm. they say – well, and there's that great exchange between the video drone producer and the Woods character where the producer asks him, well, why did you watch it? And he, and he says, business reasons, right? Mm-hmm. This is his job. And the yeah. producer goes, yeah, right. <laughs> so, so this is where the movie's just constantly messing with your head because you could make an argument on so many different sides with evidence from the film itself. I mean, the the scene where Woods – one of the most disturbing scenes for me is where Woods is getting frustrated with his assistant and slaps her. And in a second, we see that he didn't actually slap her. This is a hallucination. Mm-hmm. But he was also picturing the character played by Debbie Harry, this woman he's become involved in. Right, And we see how somehow this process has, is mixing up desire and anger within yeah. him in a way that has a repercussion. But then again, not really in the real world because he didn't really slap her.
0: Jesus, Max, you scared me. What the hell's wrong with you? I don't know, man. I mean, I, th- I think I'm getting like a rash or something. What? Are you all right? Brady? I'm. S- I am i did not mean to hit you. Hit me? You didn't hit me. No, no. No, I know I didn't
1: hit you. I mean. <sighs> Do
0: you want me to stay here?
1: And now here's the other reality of this. If this is all a form of hypnosis almost by this signal, well, what choice does he have? He's not making a moral choice, right? He's he's being put under a spell. So at the end of the day, and I think you're right, maybe I could come to a firmer answer if I had another viewing and watched more closely. But at the end of the day, I think Cronenberg is just throwing – he's throwing a hand grenade in the middle of this culture war conversation, all right, and saying, yeah, you're talking about this. Here's – deal with this now, what I've got to say about it. And I think the body technology merging thing is also very much at the forefront. A disturbing scene for me, and this speaks to your point about the, our mobile phones in our hands, is when Woods is holding a gun and it it begins to merge. These spikes come out. I mean, that was, oh, like into his wrist. And and that becomes one, but I'm with you on the VHS slot in the stomach. You can't get worse than that. No, that's just, yeah. like i'm i'm getting uncomfortable here right now the personalization
2: aspect to the expectation that technology is there to serve us is also another way that i think this seems very prescient the movie opens you mentioned this i think it opens with his assistant talking to him this this vhs tape yeah she's the waking one who him wakes him up and and you're watching it and you feel like well this movie must be set in some kind of dystopian future where That technology exists, that there is this this person that somehow is providing you with this individualized account of your day. And it knows exactly how to talk to you and the things you want to hear and his meetings. Exactly. This is is what's coming up. That's exactly it. And what we realize later as we watch the film is that, no, it's it's not really a future at all. It's not a dystopia. This is just a case where James Woods has figured out that he can pay someone, his assistant, to provide him with. These individualized schedules and these these wake up calls, but in video form. And that's it. Now we we have Siri and we have Google mm-hmm. Home and we have Alexa. It, it really does hit you. And that clip we played, too, I think is really important coming in to the review where he's talking to Masha, Max Ren, James Woods character. She's a purveyor of her own pornography that she sells to max and his tv station and that's the line josh that goes back to what we were talking about this entity that's behind this the political statement that Cronenberg is ultimately making here the way technology can be exploited by people in power to manipulate and hurt whoever they choose and identify as their enemy and if in fact we all have some of this darkness in us. Well, then we are all capable. We are all susceptible of being their enemy. And she says it that this video program, it has a philosophy. That's what makes it dangerous. That, I think, is really what Cronenberg ultimately is challenging. When you have a worldview that is driven by that kind of dogma, you really are capable of anything and you are going to employ whatever tools you have at your disposal, those tools in
1: 1983, and now are these different forms of technology, technology and media too? Right, the content itself sure. has has been weaponized here. Yeah, I agree with you that one of the one of the cool things about this film is that it's not this Blade Runner ish future, right? It's it's very recognizable, and yeah, there's technology that maybe wasn't around in '83 to a degree, small degree, it, yeah. It, most of it probably could have mm-hmm. been. But the way that morphs and becomes live, like the I think the first instance we get is of a VHS tape that kind of throbs a little bit mm-hmm. like a heartbeat, and it's just this this uh, you know cutaway shot of it that that's so disturbing. And I think a lot of those effects hold up pretty well, as a matter of fact. And Rick Baker, the vision of when he puts this headset on and they're going to try to capture one of these hallucinations has this sort of a bodily orange glow mm-hmm. to it. It's very eerie and beautiful and stands up as a practical effect very well today. So, no surprise that the the imagery, this this surrealistic body horror that Cronenberg has always been uh, so gifted at creating mm-hmm. is, is one of the standouts here. Yeah,
2: the effects you mentioned, the first time we saw that cassette in his hand kind of throb a little bit, that to me was a cheesy moment, but when you get a scene like the one where the TV starts to throb and come to life and then Debbie Harry's face and her yeah. lips are on it and it starts to emerge. Her her lips actually start to emerge from the TV yeah. and it's almost this poltergeist thing where mm-hmm. he becomes yeah, one of, of the TV. Too. That too starts out in a way cheesy and then it becomes really disturbing. Mm-hmm. Just about those lips at first, you kind of want to scoff at it. But by the end of that scene, it's pretty horrifying. And there yeah. are a lot of examples of that, I think in this film now, our wonderful producer, Sam, said something to me in our Slack about this movie that I wanted to, to throw out. Though, even as I'm throwing it out there, I'm not sure what my ultimate goal is. It might just be to get you to comment on the differences between Cronenberg and this filmmaker. I think our last blindspotting review was Body Double, the Brian De Palma film. And I was thinking about De Palma quite a bit as I was watching this movie because there is some crossover <laughs> between the type of content he puts out and James Wood's. And David Cronenberg puts out. And Sam <laughs> wrote to me this. He said, Watching Videodrome was making me think of De Palma, specifically the deliberately framed depiction of sex and violence. But then we get that line from Masha, we heard it, I referenced it, about why Videodrome is dangerous, not just because it's real, but because it has a philosophy. That's a real distinction for me, Sam says, between Cronenberg and De Palma, too. De Palma's no dummy, but he's ultimately a superficial James Woods type whose primary goal is entertainment, provocation, and titillation. Cronenberg, has a philosophy. I didn't really know how I felt about Videodrome as I was watching it, but damn, does that thing linger like few other films I've seen. Now, if this was me being the one who had to do the setup for this review, I just would have taken that and framed the entire question and discussion around that and thank Sam for doing all the heavy lifting because I think he's onto something, even though I know there are probably De Palma apologists out there who will either argue, no, you're wrong, you're not giving him enough credit, he's got a philosophy too, whatever that might be, or they'd argue his philosophy is not having a philosophy yeah. which also counts but is that is that the distinction between the two filmmakers
1: yeah no that makes a lot of sense and i think you're right that's the defense you know when you come down Not in favor of something as hallowed as body double or, I guess, De Palma in general, which I'm on record as not being as big a fan as most cinephiles. Scarface didn't come close to either of our top five of 83 lists. Scarface is actually a blind spot. so, So I'm by no means an expert on him. But yeah. The impression I've gotten is exactly what Sam describes and the arguments in favor that I've heard and read that resonate with me are those of, well, why do you need a philosophy? You know, De Palma's not really interested in having one. He's the sort of filmmaker Sam describes and you should be happy with that. Well, that comes down to what are you looking for in a film? I happen to be looking for more. Cronenberg gives me a ton more. Yeah,
2: (laughs) maybe too much at times. Yeah,
1: like more than you know what to do with. I'll take that any day of the week.
2: What do you think of Woods' performance? Because Woods for me was one of those, he was one of those 80s actors who I loved. And of course now, just based on who he is as a person, I I have a lot of issues with him. I'm going to separate those from this conversation for now. And looking back on some of these performances and his performance as Max Wren, I think is really great. And I like the way that Cronenberg frames him too. And I don't mean literally frame, but sets him up as a character where he's a scumbag. There's Mm -hmm. no doubt about it, but that doesn't mean he can't also be a victim, which he is in the movie. And so we get that element of smarminess completely smugness. Sure. And then Woods is also able to tap into being this helpless, almost lost little puppy dog. I don't think many actors could
1: pull that off. Yeah. I don't know about that. I, I don't, think many actors could this convincingly inhabit the sleaze yeah maybe <laughs> okay not. so there's that and yes. i really am trying to separate yes you know the person from the we performance we all felt that about but james was- wood's then, right, that, but <laughs> yes. that's exactly right. It's yeah. hard to do here because he seems to be playing exactly what your public perception of him is. Right? right. Okay. So it gets complicated. You got to give him credit and Kronenberg credit for introducing this character in a skeevy bathrobe, eating pizza in the morning where the sauce drips on the nude photo he's, that he's looking, looking at, at. Yeah. for research. Right? It's just like this is your guy. Yep. You're going to be sitting with him the whole movie. Get used to it. So I do like that they. Embrace Embrace that and go with it. I didn't find that he was able to access those other levels really? uh, in this performance. I don't know how much the movie is necessarily interested in those levels. So maybe it's not all on Woods. No. I don't think this is supposed to be a personal journey. I think he's our guide to start thinking about some of these questions we've been I guess talking about. I was and-
2: surprised how much— I'll say humanity oh. comes through in his performance. It's there just, just enough to make you not here, find him
1: totally repugnant. I just find the guy hard to look at. I'm just gonna well, like it's just, and I know he's. Supposed I think that's to, fair, but it, it's it's he's just not interesting. Oh, see, I, I
2: I disagree with that completely. Beyond the character the or
1: repugnance Woods. that he's car- Woods is an actor, I think, in what I've seen him in, and I haven't seen everything, mm-hmm. but here particularly, like he he fully embodies the sleaze they're going for. yes. But beyond that, I'm not that compelled huh. by his presence.
2: I'm, I'm surprised just because I can think of many moments in this film where we see that, that victim side and, of course, the last mention of it. I hate to use that word now in the context of James Woods, but this character, you see it come through. He allows it to come through. Cronenberg allows it to come through. And I think that makes him more compelling, certainly, as a character and becomes more of a conduit for us. I think if we didn't see... A little bit of ourselves in him, then the movie might fall apart, and it, it doesn't It holds together, I think, because of him. A thing I will link to in our show notes, I found a video, Josh and Benny Safty, who made good time. And if you heard their interview with me here on the show, these guys are the ultimate cinephiles, just can spit movies all day long. And they've seen so many titles. They did a thing for Criterion. I think it's on Filmstruck, but it's also on YouTube, Meet the Filmmakers. They were asked a question last October with Halloween coming up, what are your scariest movies? And they just ran the gamut talking about a lot of different things, including for all those people who took shots at me for putting the Night of the Hunter in one of my Halloween shows. They bring up the Night of the Hunter and they just cover a lot of ground. They talk about Videodrome and Cronenberg, and they talk about some of those hallucinations and how disturbing they are, but they talk about James Woods and how much they love the performance, and they say, and this goes back to something you said in our top five films of 83, joking about Rupert Pupkin having a Twitter account, I think it was Josh talking about how when you watch Videodrome now and kind of knowing everything you know about Woods, but also everything about how we've come with technology and how we interact with it now, that you can almost see that character if he was around today and had survived all of this and lived through it, he's the guy that would be kind of like James Woods himself. Maybe this overly smug, moralizing guy who's on Twitter, who's talking about these, these vast conspiracies and alleging all of these things. <laughs> like, that would be Woods now. So mm-hmm. you watch it with that prism. That would be this character Max Redd now. And I just thought it was fascinating and fun. It's a, it's a really good little video essay.
1: So what about Debbie Harry as a screen presence? Yeah, I struggled a little bit more with her.
2: She's alluring, certainly, but I don't know that I felt like we ever got to see that character as more than the object that she is and the object usually through some layer uh, of artifice, including many times a screen of some kind. It felt like there was something a little bit off in the performance to me, but how did you feel?
1: Yeah, I I thought she worked quite well because there's a certain remove to her that I couldn't quite identify whether it's, A lack of acting experience so she's holding something back because it also serves the character quite well who if i'm following it correctly is ultimately in on this conspiracy against him right uh most likely
2: that's, that's where we have to see it but yeah but she probably is that would be a reasonable assumption and then at the same time most of what he envisions as her conspiring against him are visions too, are the hallucinations? Right, that's so, true. So you never truly. I guess know.
1: I. I guess I put that together because his colleague Harlan, played by Peter Dvorsky, we find out has been in on it. Yes. You know, and, and he's, he's actually great. been placed there. He is good. He actually has been placed there. What two years ahead of time for all of this to play out? So that made me think. Well, if they placed him yeah. there, very likely it's entirely possible they placed her there as the, well. Yeah, they they controlled or
2: orchestrated how they meet. I think that is possible. The other thing I did want to mention is we talk about those layers and the movie sort of throwing some of these questions back on you, the viewer. When James Woods is describing Videodrome and he says it's just torture and murder, no plot, no characters, very, very realistic. I think it's what's next, he says. And then we hear that conversation with Masha where he is sure it's fake, only wants to believe that it's fake, that it's actors. She's saying, no, it's real. And... It's just interesting to me to think about why it would be okay for James Woods' character to watch those scenes, to watch the horrific behavior and assume it's fake and be okay with it being fake because what's happening on screen, and then you think about this in the context of we go to movies every day and watch things that seem very real that are not. Sometimes it's lewd behavior as well. But he's watching acts that are very raw. They are very, very realistic, and yet it's okay for him to watch it in his mind because it's fake but why aren't the acts themselves that we see depicted so horrific that they they repel him why why does he why does he rationalize it because of that and then the question for us Josh is we're watching it too yes right we the viewer are watching it and we unlike max ren we know for sure that it's fake because we know a director made it we know that we're watching a movie but again It forces you to think about how do you feel about those scenes that you're watching? How are you reacting to those scenes that you're watching? And are you only reacting the way that you are? And are you only comfortable watching it, perhaps, because it's fake? Even though the acts themselves are so bad that they should turn you off.
1: And that's a line in the sand that Max Wren seems... To want to draw, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's he's this guy who prides himself on not being shocked. As a matter of fact, embracing that that's how he and the Debbie Harry character first come together is to push the taboo. Mm -hmm. And yet here is where he's going to say, oh, well, then it crosses the line for me. And you're right. Why? Makes us ask why and ask that of ourselves. I think it's much more... You know, a movie that we split on that does this is Michael Hanukkah's Funny Games, I think, is Mm -hmm. asking similar things. And for a variety of reasons, I think it's not quite as successful as what Videodrome is doing here. But at heart, I think they're exploring similar territory.
2: Videodrome is available on probably any platform that you want to see it. Did you watch it on Netflix DVD?
1: Well, I I, I told you my DVD horror story. So I started it there until the DVD player tried to eat me. And then I switched to Amazon Insta.
2: Okay. And I watched it on video on demand. So there are lots of ways that you could see Videodrome if you are brave enough to take in the content. Videodrome, we should point out, does allow us this conversation to cross off one of the blind spots that like three years ago, I think it was episode 528. Yeah, March 2015. We said, so almost exactly three years ago, we said, these are our blind spots. We're going to get to these five. And I know we both Figured, oh, we'll get to those over the next year of be shows. Done by this in a year, and we put them off, and we put them off. I think we did eventually talk about Battle of Algiers. That was yes. on the list. Love that movie, Videodrome. Also among those films. And here you go, our Videodrome talk.
1: It finally happened.
2: We have a few more though to cross off, Josh.
1: And I think we might get to Killer of Sheep. I'm just going to put this out there. Charles a Burnett. listener pointed out that yes, Charles Burnett is a getting good hook. an honorary Oscar. Is yeah, that I think it? So. Award in March. So hopefully between now and then we'll manage to fit
2: that in that is our show of course if you have any comments about anything you heard or Videodrome specifically email us feedback at filmspotting.net you can also send us an mp3 file or leave us a short voicemail and we may use it in next week's show the number is 312 264 you can also find that number on the main page of
1: filmspotting.net At filmspotting.net, you can also find 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. Also, if you haven't already checked out the other shows in the FilmSpotting family of podcasts, please do so. I think you'll like them. The Next Picture Show and FilmSpotting SVU can be found in Apple Podcasts or through your preferred podcast
2: app. Out in wide release this weekend, the fifteen seventeen to Paris, a movie. I'm curious about three Americans discover a terrorist plot aboard a train while in France. It's directed by Clint Eastwood, based on real events. Three Americans who play themselves stopping this terrorist plot. Fifty Shades Freed. Here it is, Josh. We can finally close I out the trilogy. already
1: came out. <laughs>
2: no. Why do we, we have were, to keep talking about this? You no, know, it was it was just at the end of a show, and you had gotten the invite to the screening. Oh, that's what it was, which you you immediately RSVP'd for. Yes, of course. Anastasia and Christian they get married, <gasps> but Jack Hyde continues to threaten their relationship. Not oh, Jack that, Hyde, that nefarious Jack Hyde. I, I don't know why I mock. I like the first one out in limited release.: <laughs> You're not allowed to. In the fade, Diane Kruger's can-winning performance as woman seeking revenge for the death of her family in a bomb attack. I think we teased this a couple episodes ago, but its release date just got pushed back a bit. I do want to catch up with in the Fade. and Winchester, which besides having Helen Mirren in it, sounds pretty interesting. The description is an eccentric firearm heiress believes she is haunted by the souls of people killed by the Winchester repeating rifle. I'm in. No, no political statement, I think, being made there at all.
1: Should should I take after Baddington the niece 2? and I go to Paddington 2? Should Winchester. we duck into Winchester? Yeah, teach her a little okay. something.
2: My sister will love that. <laughs> Next week on the show, we're going to do an Oscar catch-up. We are going to watch Gary Oldman as Winston Churchill in the Best Picture-nominated Darkest Hour, and we think... We're going to share our top five Gary Oldman performances, unless you talk us out of it. Feedback at filmspotting.net.
1: Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant, that's Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at wbez.org. Do me a favor, unless you're driving, don't do it then. But if you're just sitting around, when I'm done talking... Take a second, give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That way, we can reach some new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening.
0: This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
2: So let me get this straight. You have time to watch movies over the weekend. You don't go see Paddington 2. You watch another Wes Anderson movie
1: and Paddington 1. I'm going to do Paddington right. I'm going to prepare, do my homework. <laughs> yeah, that's study what the intricacies. Well, apparently Paddington 2 is, is, you know, Citizen Kane of this century. So at least to 2018. I better, I better take it seriously. Yeah, you and, should. And study the first. <laughs> no, I told you. I'd, we're, we've got my what? niece. You can't, you can't go by yourself. To the Wait, theater? I've got my nieces staying You're gonna with You're going to be us, judged at so Paddington 2? I would go to Paddington 2 by myself. Um, no, we're going to need it. I'm keeping Paddington 2 in my back pocket for babysitting weekend. I just hope okay. it's still in theaters. Uh, yeah. Because the moronic American public is not deciding to see it apparently. Not that this
2: matters to us, but someone did write in and say that it is apparently doing well internationally.
1: Yeah, yeah, I heard that. Which is, but I don't. I suppose good. I, I, yeah, I still don't get it. But um, yeah, I'll see it. I'll see it. So we watched, and of course, I knew I was right. They they said we haven't seen Paddington. We never saw Paddington. I knew we watched it as okay. a family, the original one. And sure enough, we're ten minutes in. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Everybody we, remembered. We, we saw this. So, so yeah, we finished it anyway. Delightful, just delightful. It is now. I want to go back and
2: watch it because I honestly remember nothing about
1: it. Mm. Yeah, it's fun. Hmm. It's a good watch. But yeah, Darjeeling, I, I also had to complete Yeah, you watched again. West Education, and now it's done. It's done. She's seen everything, ready for Isle of Dogs. And, and
2: did she like it
1: um, more than you? Same? A, less? I think we were all kind of, you know, all enjoyed it, but we're all kind of feeling that there's something. What did you say? I mentioned it in on Letterboxd. When Emotional reaches. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was... That's a good way to describe it. You can, and I know some people accuse all of his films of, hmm. of doing that. Um, I never feel them. Everything is just like clicks beautifully, and here is where you can see the gears. You know, you can feel the gears a little bit. Yeah, um, it's still, you know, it still worked for me, but I could see it trying to work. <laughs> if that makes any sense. And um, so, yeah, it's it's probably minor, minor Wes Anderson for me, but still enjoyable. I didn't get a chance to really
2: watch anything except the movies. I absolutely had to. Had to watch a couple to prep for the top five of 83. And, well, I should say two and a half. I did have to re-familiarize myself with the meaning of life.
0: Because mm.
2: it had been a long time. But otherwise, I was in Tampa this weekend. I had I have a college buddy, one of my roommates, who lives there. And so we decided... This group of four of us, there's five of us from college who used to get together like every summer back before we had wives and kids. Well, I had a wife and kids because I was the one I was the first one and fairly young when I got married and started having kids. But they were all single and we all had a lot more free time. And every summer we'd get together and go to a different ballpark and we'd see a baseball game and just hang out and have a good time. And then that ended about 2008. So I have seen him a couple times, this guy. But. The other group of the guys, the other group I haven't seen. And so we decided to turn this into Little Boys Weekend, and two of the other guys flew into Tampa. Nice. And so our little quartet got together. It was Gasparilla, which i had never heard of, but is apparently Tampa's Mardi Gras. Okay. And it's all about the bay and the water. And so there is a parade, and there are beads involved and tons of drinking, but it all starts with like pirates invading the bay and cannons being shot
1: and stuff. So my only frame of reference here is Magic Mike, right? That was Tampa, wasn't it? Maybe that was Gasparilla. Well, I'm just Maybe thinking about the, the when they're time. out on the boats mm-hmm. like in the on the kind of on the
2: beach but it's so. like the shallow. I was just thinking about the where do they go for the stripper contest at the end? Oh, that I don't seems like that. Well, that's just the convention, <laughs> the stripper convention. But we we missed all that. We we avoided all that nonsense. Probably the traffic for the best. was insane. We we went golfing in St.
1: Petersburg. <laughs> so we avoided all that and probably missed out on a good time. So I and got, I'm picturing it would have been the same if you'd all gone in college. Probably. Just knowing you. I, I don't see you yeah. like ever really no. going Gasparilla Wild. I might have been a little more inclined, but we did have a good time. It's just
2: fun to hang out with the guys you haven't seen in a really long time. And yeah, I don't really have any movies to talk about, but anybody who's actually listening to this and they're going to be in Tampa and they want a recommendation. I've got a bar recommendation. The last place we went before we all shoved off one night was a place called Hotel Bar, downtown Tampa. Kind of small, intimate, but just the perfect bar vibe playing. Great music, Nina Simone, some other stuff that I I wasn't familiar with and I, I was checking and it's blues stuff and from the 60s and 70s, just a great eclectic mix of music. Great, kind of cool, calm atmosphere. You can actually hear each other talk sitting at the bar and they had a drink called the hotel nacional this cuban drink that i only had two of but that's because i'd already had one drink before that and i should have ordered this one and if i was in for a long night i would have had 10 of them it was just perfect and here's here's what's in it i don't even know i know what pineapple and lime are josh
1: mm-hmm. but i don't know what Cana brava is or Giffard pesh Lost you on the second one. Maybe the first one, some sort of sugar. I'm guessing. Like a sugar cane. So here was the best part, though. <laughs> the best part was the bartender
2: is working, and he's making these cocktails. We're sitting at the bar, so he's making them right in front of us. And he makes up this now, which he he tells us is their most popular drink. We had seen him making a few of them. And it because of the pineapple, you can tell there's pineapple in it. It's a little yellowish. And uh, my buddy Jason is like, I don't know. You know, that looks really good, but... You know, it could be really sweet. And he says, and I think I even said to him at that time, I said, well, yeah, I mean, it's got pineapple in it. And of course, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be sweet a little. So he asks the bartender, is that is that sweet? And it was like he had said the most offensive thing in the world. The guy, the guy, the guy gave us that that smile like he was kind of, you know, gritting his teeth through it, it trying to hold it in. It's like. I can't remember what he said exactly but it was like I got to put a ban on people asking people always ask if our drinks are sweet and no they're not sweet. He's like they're they're perfectly balanced. Oh. <laughs> you wow. know, they're they're exactly what they should be. And and, and I get, I get it. I get it on something like that could be an insult because of course it's not he's not making, you know, a daiquiri at some happy hour, right? You know, whatever. He you're he, not at the swim up bar at the all inclusive hotel. No, he, is is what he's implying. Yeah, he's he's trying to make he's working a, there. He's a, doing something a delicately balanced concoction, and you know what? He did pull it off, and I, I thought he was going to kick us out, though. <laughs> Honestly.
1: I need the bar recommendation for Seattle. That's, that's where I need because with the film spotting meetup we're going to do, I've asked a few people who are yeah. out that way and, uh, and getting some suggestions. But that's what I need is for me. Actually, I was going to say at this age, but I've always liked bars that are quiet enough where you can talk yeah, to each other. You have to have but a conversation. Yeah, yeah. So that's what we need in Seattle so we can actually talk to each other. Can't
2: so. really help you there. I haven't been to Seattle since back when we used to do these trips. We did one to Seattle and went to Safeco Field. I probably can come up with the name of the burrito place we went at 2 a.m. Okay. When we were hammered, which I'm guessing after this meetup, you might need that. You're well, going to need the late night burrito spot
1: where it just tastes so Debbie's not. Debbie's not coming on this one. So Even there's better. a chance I will be able to get to bed at a decent time oh, without on. her there to keep me out all night. You're the
2: worst. Film spotting is listener supported.